The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 31. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Rather tantalisingly, we stopped last time with the arrival of two murderers. I was joking that presumably they don't come on looking too much like men of their trade, but certainly it should be suggested that these are characters from the farther reaches of polite society. There's a reason that Macbeth wants to speak to them alone, and he has sent his attendant to guard the door while they chat. In fact, they've met already, as Shakespeare is at pains to point out. He has Macbeth start with this information, asking, Was it not yesterday we spoke together? And the first of the two murderers answers, It was, so please your highness. This is all fairly straightforward. They've already spoken, presumably about a job. Now, we who are readers know they're murderers and can start to suspect, but a theatre audience is still in the dark. So Macbeth picks up where they must have left off. Well then, now, have you considered of my speeches? Know that it was he, in the times past, which held you so under fortune, which you thought had been our innocent self. This I made good to you in our last conference, passed in probation with you, how you were born in hand, how crossed, the instruments who wrought with them, and all things else that might to half a soul, and to a notion crazed, say, Thus did Banquo. The rhythm of this speech is really hard to measure. Technically, Macbeth is speaking in blank verse, but towards the end it jangles out of tune and really feels quite messy. But we'll see why as we unpack it. He starts almost hesitantly. Well then, now. These sound like filler words. They actually complete the line of verse started by the murderer. It was, so please your highness, well then, now. Believe it or not, these three words, well, then, and now, are quite a landmark for different actors in their interpretation of this role. Apparently, when Laurence Olivier played Macbeth, he managed to make an entire scene out of just these three little words, just about hypnotising the two murderers into obedience with them. Well, then, and now, separated quite a lot. So since then, several actors have breathed imaginative life into these three little words. But of course, what really matters is what follows. Macbeth asks the men if they've considered what he talked about yesterday. We know he's talking about Banquo, but he's careful not to use his name until absolutely necessary. He's also picking up where he left off, presumably laying some seeds of murderous doubt. He's insisting that it's Banquo who has kept these men down, held them so under fortune. They've been blocked or blackballed or punished somehow, and Macbeth is here trying to convince them that this is Banquo's fault and not his. Know that it was he in the times past which held you so under fortune, which you thought had been our innocent self. Evidently, he told them this yesterday too, 
but he's repeating it to make sure they're convinced, and of course, so that we in the audience hear it as well. He explained it well, he says, or clearly, in their last conversation, and provided proof, too. Macbeth calls it probation, a process of proving something. This I made good to you in our last conference, passed in probation with you. But what is he proving? He has listed the various things that Banquo has done to them, explaining how they were led along by him and then betrayed, and also the various instruments, whether these are schemes or people in on the betrayal, and who wrought them. In short, he's explained just about every element of the plot, with enough evidence that even someone with half a brain or out of their wits would know that Banquo did it. So he's explaining how you were born in hand, how crossed, the instruments, who wrought them, and all things else that might, to half a soul and to a notion crazed, say, thus did Banquo. The rhythm of the speech is uneven, because the speech should seem a little unhinged. We've just had Banquo speaking honestly to us about his concerns over Macbeth's rise to power. And we've also just had Macbeth confessing that he won't be satisfied until his power is secure, and that he's not happy at the thought that he sold his soul so that Banquo's line can be king's. And now we're seeing that actually he's already started to put a plan in motion to have Banquo killed. We have murderers who are here discussing a plan to do just this. So this jagged speech to the two would-be assassins is metrically peculiar precisely because it is emotionally peculiar. Here we see Macbeth trying to arrange the murder of his friend, as though killing Duncan hadn't been bad enough. The first murderer responds. He says, You made it known to us. He's acknowledging that, yes, Macbeth told them all this dreadful stuff about Banquo yesterday. And Macbeth continues... I did so, and went further, which is now our point of second meeting. Do you find your patience so predominant in your nature that you can let this go? Are you so gospeled to pray for this good man and for his issue, whose heavy hand hath bowed you to the grave and beggared yours forever? So... Macbeth basically told them all this horrible information in their first meeting, and then left them to think about it. He would have them believe that Banquo has caused them serious professional or societal harm, with such emphasis on how he has held them under fortune, and now here his heavy hand hath bowed you to the grave. It makes me wonder if these men could have been quite high-ranking officers of some kind, now demoted or reduced to more unsavoury work. Either way, Macbeth insists that he told them all of this, and it is the reason for this second meeting. He's wondering if they are so patient that they can just ignore what he's told them. Do you find your patience so predominant in your nature that you can let this go? Now he gets a really strange dig in, he asks if they're so imbued with the spirit of the gospel that they're content to pray and forgive this good man and his descendants, whose heavy hand has played such a part in keeping them down, and has made them, and their descendants, beggars forever. 
are you so gospeled to pray for this good man and for his issue whose heavy hand hath bowed you to the grave and beggared yours forever it's a very clever piece of manipulation right down to the almost casual reference to banquo's children his issue since part of the assignment is going to be to kill banquo's son fleance too Macbeth just slips it in, juxtaposing Banquo's issue with the offspring of the murderers, who will be beggars forever because of him. The first murderer gets another line now, answering Macbeth's taunt. He says, We are men, my liege. To me, this sounds quite like an echo of Macbeth's own line earlier in the play, when he was being goaded by his lady. He insisted that he dared do all that may become a man. Likewise, these murderers appear to stand ready for a comparable range of duties. Macbeth, unconvinced, is savagely dismissive. Aye, in the catalogue ye go for men, as hounds and greyhounds, mongrels, spaniels, curs, shufts, water rugs and demi-wolves are clept all by the name of dogs. The valued file distinguishes the swift, the slow, the subtle, the housekeeper, the hunter, every one according to the gift which bounteous nature hath in him closed, whereby he does receive particular addition from the bill that writes them all alike, and so of men. Now, if you have a station in the file, not in the worst rank of manhood, say it, and I will put that business in your bosoms, whose execution takes your enemy off, grapples you to the heart and love of us, who wear our health but sickly in his life, which, in his death, were perfect. There's been such talk already in the play about what it is to be a man. Here, now, Shakespeare does a brilliant trick and points out just how many different kinds of animal can come under the umbrella term dog. The idea of a catalogue of dogs isn't totally random. In fact, there are two worth mentioning that might have been around or available to Shakespeare while he was writing this play. First off, there's a book written in Latin called De Canibus Britannicis, translated as Of English Dogs, the diversities, the names, the natures, and the properties. This was written by the English physician John Keyes, who gives his name to Gonville and Keyes College in Oxford. As if that weren't enough, a man called Edward Topsell also produced a fabulous book called The History of Four-Footed Beasts. Now, this did come out in 1607, after the date we have for Macbeth, but Topsell was perpetual curate of the Church of St. Botolph's in Aldersgate in London, mere footsteps away from where Shakespeare lived on Silver Street. So what's not to say that he might have been aware of his neighbour's busy work making a catalogue of our furry friends that includes more than a few of the species Macbeth lists here. Of course, the wider question is why on earth Shakespeare might bother including such a long list of dog breeds, everything from demi-wolves and hounds to more obscure little creatures like shuffs and water rugs. By some accounts, this is yet more flattery to King James, apparently an avid dog lover. Perhaps it is no harm that Shakespeare put a whole list of puppies into his head at the precise moment he plots to kill James's mythological ancestor. It's a poetic enough list of names, 
but it's made even more interesting by the reference to a greyhound. To me, this feels almost like an afterthought, since we've already had hounds starting the list, but you might not know that the greyhound is the only breed of dog mentioned by name in the King James Version of the Bible. So, perhaps King James might have really liked greyhounds too. It's hard to know, it's fun to conjecture, but I wouldn't necessarily pin all of my hopes on this being reliable information. It is peculiar that Macbeth goes to such length, but it does also vilify the murderers. This long list of canines can all be considered dogs, and so by comparison even these two lumps could technically be considered men. I, in the catalogue ye go for men, as hounds and greyhounds, mongrels, spaniels, curs, shuffs, water rugs and demi-wolves are clept all by the name of dogs. Macbeth lists the various qualities that make different breeds of dog useful and popular. The swift, the slow, the subtle, the housekeeper, the hunter, every one according to the gift which bounteous nature hath in him closed, whereby he does receive particular addition. But all of them, regardless of where on this spectrum they land, all of them can be called dogs. And so it is with men. But now Macbeth gets to the meat of his argument. He taunts the murderers. If, he suggests, they aren't the absolute worst of men, the lowest in the pecking order, if they have some standing or station or position in this long line of so-called men, he wants them to say so. Now, if you have a station in the file not in the worst rank of manhood, say it. If they do say so, he will give them a job to do that will remove Banquo, this enemy, while at the same time bonding them to him, the King of Scotland. If they kill Banquo, they'll make Macbeth very happy and make his rule perfect. And I will put that business in your bosoms, whose execution takes your enemy off, grapples you to the heart and love of us, who wear our health but sickly in his life, which, in his death, were perfect. We get some of our most common euphemisms and images here. Again, we have murder described as business. For murderers, I suppose it actually is, and it's fast becoming part of Macbeth's M.O. too. There's a little irony to Shakespeare using execution to mean the carrying out of a task and assassination at the same time. It's grim, but it's very entertaining wordplay. Macbeth is making the hard sell here. Killing Banquo will not only rid these men of their worst enemy, but also endear them to him. And of course, as king, he will be able to do good things for them. He concludes with another version of this image of kingship as a robe to be worn. Macbeth and his rule will be sickly, so uncomfortable, uncertain or unwell, so long as Banquo lives, but once he's dead, all will be perfect and he can wear his health much more happily. The meter is calming down now as Macbeth warms to his theme. It's rather chilling just how smoothly he can speak of Banquo's crimes and cruelties. Given how many times we have seen him straight up lie on stage, 
it's fairly safe to assume that Banquo hasn't actually done these murderers any harm. The little nod that Macbeth makes when he says, which you thought had been our innocent self, should probably make us think that Macbeth is indeed the responsible party. But for how the murderers are going to respond to this and how the plan proceeds, you'll have to wait until the next episode. In it, we will reach the end of this treacherous little scene and learn just what Macbeth has in store for Banquo. In the meantime, I'll put some fun details of King James and dogs in the show notes, along with some of the more extraordinary and fantastic beasts that Edward Topsell included in his book about our four-legged friends. You'll find all of that and more on the show notes page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.